What's up, fuck boys? This is Slashers, a podcast about movies and horror for those who love horror. My name is Jake, and with me, as for the first time in a long time, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Brian. Brian, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hey, what's going on, guys? Did you miss me? No. No, no. resoundingly enough. <laughs> Who are you? It's been ages. It has been ages. Yeah, I've uh, actually just been studying abroad, checking out the different locales for Hammer that I'm going to be uh, checking you, you know, checking you guys out. That makes no fucking sense. I'm going to be <laughs> delving into, I guess, Hammer Productions. So, so you were backpacking went, through Europe? Yeah, I, I went I went to Europe <laughs> and, and did all that stuff. So it was great. No, fuck no. I was stuck in the mountains because it the was The fun burning. part is you would go to two different places. <laughs> like, I think that they shot two films on location and the rest were all in England at Bray Studios <laughs> or nearby. Yeah, probably. So yeah. that'd be the shittiest backpacking trip ever. You'd be like, <laughs> hey, wait, why don't I just go across the street? Oh, okay. And we're done. <laughs> Sick. All right. All right. I still have 17 days of vacation left. Isn't it funny, though, how, at least for me, I think when I hear other people from Europe who say, oh, I've been to multiple countries, over there, it's like going to different states. For sure. Whereas yeah. here, we're like... Oh my God, your your passport must look amazing and exotic. They're like, nah, dude, I traveled like four hours and I went to three different countries. <laughs> On a public transit, no yeah. less. Yeah. Oh, also, um, Chad's here. Hey, hey guys. <laughs> no, hi. No, nah, it's enough, Chad. This is the Brian Show. Yeah. This is a podcast about movies and more. And so here is an episode that is movies and more. This is all about the more, definitely. This so. is Hammer Films, motherfuckers. That's right. Absolutely. Now, we did a poll with our Patreon patrons and asked them, what would they like to hear? And this is the one that by far and large. So I had two of the ones that I wanted were either a biography on the Misfits or this one. And oh, since wow. then, the, the Misfits <laughs> have announced more tour dates. So their saga is not actually over. So in good conscience, I wouldn't even want to do it. And this so one basically won. what you're saying is no pressure, Brian. Everybody <laughs> wants to hear this episode. Don't fuck up. Even actually, me, they're judging I went you in, right now. Yeah. I went in and actually downvoted Misfits. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I was wondering how that happened. Negative 17% vote. What the fuck? <laughs> so, Brian, shall you take us away? Yeah, man. Let's get started. Did you, so what research articles or whatever did you use? Because I want to make sure that we are doing some kind of bibliographical reference at the beginning. Because I think I, I read excerpts from like 20 books using Google Books and a couple other things. But the main one that I read was Real Terror, the scary, bloody, gory hundred years of yeah, classic horror Yeah, I actually went a lot. Uh, a lot of the information just came directly from the Hammer Hammer's website. Yeah, it's really oh, good. The historical cool. page, basically, on everything Hammer. It's right? a very good chronology. Yeah, exactly. So It's actually better, or at least more clearly set out than like Wikipedia's. Right, and even I, though I've done a lot of Wikipedia stuff, oh. too. But, well, it's know. actually very My good. Bad. Well, Because the stuff that I read from Real Terror, I saw paraphrased or at least summarized in the right, Wikipedia. Right, right, absolutely. And then I think Chad and I both watched the Hammer of the Studio that Drip Blood, and then I watched the Flesh and Blood documentary that's available for free on Tubi. It's delightful. There's titties. They're not paying us to say that. They're not. <laughs> I keep trying to get their attention. They like all of my posts, but then they don't do anything about it. I'm like, excuse me. Excuse me. Nobody rides for free, bitches. That's right. So, Ryan? Yeah, let's take it away. Basically, the way it started was uh, from a guy named William Hines, not Hines Ketchup, H-I-N-D's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> he was originally a jeweler in London with his brother, Frank, 
and they split up after he kind of went off and did his own thing. Like he, they established success and he's like, ah, you know what? Fuck jewelry. I don't do that anymore. I want to delve into other things. I want to do theater. (laughs) (laughs) And his brother's like, yeah, well, I'm going to actually keep this real job. So no, no, just kidding. You can totally be a theater actor. No, he sucked. (laughs) No, he really did. Yeah, his son Anthony was like, he was a failed comedian because he wasn't funny. Right, right. The funniest shit. Right, I mean, and this all leads up to his ultimate like untimely death. I mean, we'll get to that a little bit later, but that's almost comical as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so Hammer comes from Heinz not because of like any alliteration or anything. It's because it is Hammer from, Smith. Uh, yeah, it's from the lo- location of and where so it was, it was from. Hammer and Smith was the vaudeville act. And then he just presented himself as Hammer. Right, exactly. So William, he became increasingly involved in the theater groups. He ended up owning a bunch of different venues throughout town, the local venues, which is kind of neat, I guess, just supporting local actors, right? I mean, which I feel like you should always do. Absolutely. Which leads him into film distributorship because he'd done theater distributorship. Right, yeah. right. And that's when that's what kind of ultimately led him to meet up with goddamn Carrera. Carreras. Yeah. Yeah, Carrera. He didn't just go straight to owning theaters. He actually ended up purchasing cinemas as well. And that's what led him to meet, meet up eventually with the Carreras. Perfect. Okay. And the Carreras essentially between those two guys ended up creating everything. Well, <laughs> basically everything, but they had the the separate company that owned all oh, the exclusive s- films. Exclusive films. Yeah. Right. And then kind of funny, right? They owned yeah. it. Yeah. Exclusive. Exclusively <laughs> owned well, this and their exclusive films. So World War II happens. So if I'm not mistaken, not to overstep on you. No, yeah, go for it. November fifth, nineteen thirty four is when Hammer launches. And at that point, distributorship. Then World War II happens, and suddenly you have your entire workforce going off to war. When By the time they come back in 1937, Hammer declares bankruptcy, but exclusive film remains. So exclusive was the offshoot of Hammer, then was the more proficient business model, then Hammer was a subsidiary in 1947. So a 10-year gap. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's a 10-year gap in that time span. I believe Heinz, if I'm not mistaken, Heinz continues with his theatrical acts and his comedy acts, Correct. which are awful. And that's when he actually has his untimely motorcycle accident. Yeah. So within those 10 years, Carrera continues making films and actually Carrera and the son of William, I believe it's Anthony, they both meet up and he kind of convinces Anthony to come back and join in, and they both recreate Hammer. Exactly. Hmm. Hammer time. And it's interesting because the Carreras family, there is strife like you wouldn't believe. Father's not talking to son, so there's three generations right. involved, and one's a businessman, one's a salesman, and they just, there's strife. It's almost lucky for Heinz that his dad died because he was very much a creative force through all of Hammer, even though he was almost reluctantly brought into that element. But it seems like most people were kind of reluctantly like, oh, I'm just... I'm just here for the paycheck and suddenly they're like directing and producing and they're like, wait, I'm sorry, what happened? <laughs> here you go. Run with it. Yeah. Don't ever waste your time looking up who wrote these movies. It's all the same people no, they're all with the same. different names. They, they just wow. do the, was it, pseudonyms? Yep. So they're like, well, technically, I think they had to actually do that to get around all of these things. They're like loopholes. Yeah. Where like the BFI would not allow them to release something if the, unless they had multiple people working on this. British Film Institute, I'll have you know. Yeah. <laughs> but also when it came to not distributorship. Not the bat, body fat index. Yeah. <laughs> so when they would go and they would market. I don't think that's a thing. Because they would that. co-market <laughs> with stuff like, let's say, Universal Pictures or so on. And they 
they would say, well, here's five scripts. What do you pick? And there was an instance when they were trying to make a TV show where they had picked all from one writer who we'll get into later. And basically, Tony Hines like, this is a shit show. You don't even know that this is all the same person. Like, you don't know what we do. You're done. And he pulls the plug. Wow. Super weird. Right. Right. I wish so, I was in this time period with them making these films. It'd be chaos, <laughs> like, dude. I know. But, but, I mean, but I, essentially, I all chaos. you have to do is just like hang on to the coattail yeah. and, just, and just ride it until it ends. Exactly. Like, well, okay. I got a bunch of credits for all this shit. <laughs> I mean, we put out how many goddamn films in the course of 10 years? Right. Over 250 be... films and TV products. Yeah. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so cool that they used all the same people because the documentary I was watching, they were like, hey, we were one of the only like studios doing right. continuous work. And they're like, this is so unusual for the industry. And no, I was like, that's absolutely. awesome. I mean, and at the end there, that's when, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but I always Please do this. Do. Hey, uh, it's your show. You can't really do a <laughs> right. timeline on this because there's so many things that are moving at the same time like at the end when it's all said and done the british film industry actually commemorated i guess you can say hammer films and they like gave them this giant award for contributing to english oh cinema and english yeah it was in 1968 they got the queen's award for industry because they brought in 2.5 million pounds each year for three years consecutively Dang. Yeah, which is you're freaking talking 68 awesome money yeah which also at that time the pound outweighed the dollar significantly wow unintended of course with the weight reference there you go <laughs> right so when they first started out what's really interesting is when you think of Hammer films, at least to me, you're going with Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all of the classics. Or Mrs. Hyde, Sister Hyde, if you S will. Sister Hyde, exactly. <laughs> but in all reality, what they originally wanted to do was have them just be essentially these these quota quickie films that yep. they wanted to start out with. And they're <laughs> like, okay, slam it all together. It could be sloppy as fuck. Who gives a shit? We're not really aiming to get like a big crowd here. We just want to be in between A and in between B, right? So here's a major motion picture here. Here's a major motion picture here. What's an in-between month where we can release this just to satiate? Sa yeah, satiate. Yeah. Satiate. There we go. I'm coming along now, guys. Everyone's got, got it. Yeah, just to appease, you know, the people who are essentially just waiting for the next film. So, so the first one they do, River Patrol, 1948. It's literally a movie about nylon smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is not like high art. Sounds sexy. And then from there, they this is kind of weird. They buy the rights to a radio play and do it as a film. Is and that then, Dick Barton? Yeah. Yeah. And there, it becomes like a series that I'd never even heard of before this. Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a whole BBC like big thing that they had. But then other companies ripped it off. They made up their own characters who were like radio personalities and had these adventure movies. And it's like, it's so art imitating art in this right, period. Right, it's very absolutely. much like we were talking about when we did Tales from the Crypt and everything. It's Everything is so copy and paste that eventually right, it's like right. the head eating the tail kind of. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like <laughs> I'm reading this and in my mind, when I see Dick Barton, I'm like Dick Tracy. Yeah. That's just what I see. <laughs> you right. And and so I was thinking to myself, I don't know if that's like a reference to like private as in private eye. So they're saying Dick. Like Dick Tracy, he's a private eye, or is it Dick? Is it Dick Barton? Because he's kind of a private eye, also. But it's not. Is his name Dick? Is his name Richard? Well, if his name's Richard, <laughs> I guess that all makes sense. Is it Richard Tracy? Is it Rickard? Rick, Rickard. Is it Richard Barton? <laughs> it is, is Richard it Barton, and he was a secret agent. 
Ooh, okay. That's because I only know that because the 48 movie is called Dick Barton Secret Agent. That makes sense. I also might be guessing. <laughs> Just realized that maybe it's to throw me off of his set because no, if he was no, a real it's... secret agent, would he tell me? <laughs> mm. Yeah, so I mean, they did, they did a host of, of different films that weren't exactly the horror-esque and or sci-fi, right? right. Which, which essentially is what ended up boosting them to, I guess, critic fame. Right is with the first uh, sci-fi film that they came out with, but I'm I'm jumping ahead here. I, although you know you said you don't do the whole chronological thing with me, this is my podcast. Damn it! And I, <laughs> do it. <laughs> no. Uh, so the next thing I wanted to cover is essentially how many different locations they went through when it came comes to the production studio. Right. Okay. I think they went through four different studios over the course of like three years. Hmm. So, well, that's a little bit frustrating because there's co-branding, there's different things as far as like, you know, MGM studios. So by and large, when you're doing sets, yeah, when you're doing, there's the famous, uh, what do you call it? The Bray Studios location is like the central hub. Right. Right. But I mean, how many times, I think two of the three or two of the four film studios were off the River Thames. Which yeah. is essentially like, I don't know if it was like a neighboring mansion. They were all mansions. Apparently, everybody <laughs> owned mansions out there. They're like, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's go Must to this next nice. one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, initially, they were at Mansion Dial Close. That was in 1949, but they were they were forced to move because they were doing a lot of nightly shoots <laughs> and the residents around weren't too happy about how loud they were being, which yeah. is pretty understandable. But they're like, ah, well, I mean, we can't afford to like go to an actual studio lot, so we're going to work with what we got, right? I mean, why not? After that, they go to Oakley Court Mansion and it was there where they filmed Five separate movies, Man in Black in 1949, Room to Let, Room to Let? I might have messed up that one. No, it's Room to Let. Yeah, it's, room. Like a, it's a rental. Oh, okay. 1949, Someone at the Door in 1949 as well. So that's three films all within 19, in 1949. So they're just Plus fucking- Plus the Adventures of PC. They're slamming them out. Yeah. What the Butler Saw in 1950 and The Lady Craved Excitement in 1950. Ooh, oh, yeah. That sounds <laughs> exciting. I like it. Uh, in 1950, Hammer moved again. This time it was to Gilston Park, which is a country club in Harlow, Essex. I feel like Essex is a fancy word for like a suburb. Maybe not. I don't mm. know. It's a place. Is yeah. Essex a, is, is, uh, Essex is a place? Officially, like, fuck them. We won the Revolutionary War. <laughs> <am I right? laughs> Sorry. We have I could also 1% be of our listenership is from <laughs> the UK. So, boy, what, what, governor? I know what Essex is. Right. So the movies that they slammed out there were the, yeah, Black, the Black Widow, the Rossiter case. I don't know how it's pronounced. To Have and To Hold and The Dark Light. They were all made in 1950. So was that four films? Uh, three months apiece? Dude, that's awesome. Fucking <laughs> slamming them out. Raw dog. So yeah, 1951, they essentially moved to down place or Bray Bray Studios. Bray Studios was a delightful home that was so tiny that very often boom operators would have to stand outside of the home and stick microphones on a rod through a window. It was so delightful that it would rain through the roof. Right. So much so <laughs> that director Terry Fisher had to advise his actors to continue acting despite torrential downpour. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking nuts. Yeah. But people love I mean, You're hearing people like Hazel Court talk about this shit 
And she's like, it's the time of my life. Right. Yeah. I right. was being rained on in a Victorian dress, but it was lovely. I don't know if I believe that. I definitely think it's a little bit of nostalgia. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. But I mean, I can imagine us yokels now looking back into seeing some stuff that went down there as far as how fucking shitty some circumstances were. But you're like, like, laugh about it. You're like, oh man, (laughs) they really went through some tough times. And then they're like, this is fucking bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) It's waning. I hate this. But I mean, essentially it, it, it became completely renovated. So they renovated the entire studio, the entire lot. And then that's where they renamed it Brave Studios. And, that's where all of the future films that are so iconic, like Dracula and, and you know, the yeah. steps and everything, that's where you, you see Bray Studios. And so much so that, like, if you know your Hammer films, there is the staircase shot. There is the foyer shot, stuff that right, you can right. see repetitively, but that they dressed well. And actually, because of the famous Bray Studios, you actually got vital team members of Hammer from that. Oh, yeah, so the, like, absolutely. I mean, everybody that jumps into these films ends up staying and and not, I don't want to say riding the, the rides the coattail of Hammer films, but they just keep them for the next film and for the next film and for the next film. And then it's not so much like, oh, shit, we need to find this actor for this. They literally have a list and they're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, dude, hey, what, are you, doing? what are you doing next <laughs> month? <laughs> are you free? They're basically salaried. Right. So, like, Anthony Nelson Keys, Jimmy Sangster, they're just meant to paint and patch and revise this dilapidated house that you couldn't change the furniture in. So they were working a full-time job just on the, the house, not including filming, right? Right. Both of them went on to be producers. Jimmy went on to write multiple movies just because they were handymen. That's well, yeah, how, I like, mean, it, loyal the people yeah, were. Yeah, it's, it's the experience you accumulate just over the years of being around great people who right. kind of shine on each other. They had to have been having fun if they're all going to continuously work like this together. Oh, absolutely. But you could also imagine maybe there was a little bit of uh, butting heads. I mean, with so many people working in close confines oh, yeah. for so long. I mean, you can imagine you don't probably ever read about there being any issues, but I mean, fuck. Yeah. After seeing you fuck boys for a little bit, I'm like, I need a break. <laughs> These guys no, are mean. <laughs> they said they didn't miss me when I was gone for seven months in a cave reading Wikipedia. Uh, I hate you. You saw that Patreon video, huh? <laughs> yeah, but who was on who's who was on the knee and who was on the bed, huh? Oh, I, you know, I'm just much better at it than any of you. <laughs> Chad's a giver. <laughs> Go on, Jake. Were you going to explain uh, what was on the Patreon video or were we just going to... Oh, yeah. If you want to... I'm not going to explain what was on there. I'm just going to leave the mystery. But if you want to throw money our way, you can find out what the fuck we're talking about. Ooh, the mystery. So delightful. (laughs) I'm still still, uh, entertaining the idea of the boudoir shoot. I'm just going to say that now. Yeah, I mean, dude, I already have some Daisy Dukes, man. So maybe bust them out. Are they made out of lace? Well, they could be. If you could pay me a hundred bucks a month, then I'll get them nice. I'll get them custom made. I feel like we could have a few patrons uh, lined up. Yeah, so so they could see the uh, the cock shaft. Yeah, I think there'd probably be a few. So the next step in my, <laughs> you like how I was just like, eh, yeah, moving on. on. 
What, like, how do you pick up after cockshaft? Uh, eh, mm. I think that conversation is dead. He's dead, Jim. Star Trek reference. Fuck Star Wars. Gonna say that now. Haven't watched the trailer. Won't watch the trailer. From cock and balls and shafts and and the likes, we go to new relationship formed within Hammer Films. Hammer and Exclusive signed a four-year production and distribution contract with Robert Lippert, who is an American film producer who essentially strikes a deal with them where he does a lot of the distributing, di- distributing, there we go, in America and actually throws a couple bones back to Hammer's way in the form of American, like big name American actors hmm. to be in the films. So it's kind of cool. They both work for each other, co-promoting essentially. Yep. Interesting. So... Were these yeah. as big in the U.S. at the time <laughs> as... Yes and no. It's interesting that... How can I put it? The names are so varied, right? Did you guys know, Jake, did you notice how different a U.S. release of a Hammer film as far as the name is compared to the 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 English version? 100%. It's completely changed. And I'm like, I would have no idea that was essentially the same film. So I actually did some research because, I mean, obviously I love the Misfits, <laughs> right? And so several Misfits film uh, songs, One Million Years BC, so forth, are referenced either the same subject matter as Hammer or literally the Hammer work. And so one of them was called The Fanatic. And you're sitting there going, because obviously Chad is the foremost authority on music. Absolutely. He's saying there is no misfit song called The Fanatic, but there is a song called Da 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 My Darling. Utter a single word. For some uh, for a second uh-huh. there, I thought we had Glenn Danzig in <laughs> the presence. But I didn't shrink a foot. <laughs> and Man. your chin didn't grow out. Like. Dude, who's sending us a copy of Verotica or whatever his <laughs> shitty movie is so we can review it? I'm not going to pay for it, I, but I will definitely watch the fuck out of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Robert Lippert helped finance more than 300 films in his life, which Damn. is kind of cool. The guy's yeah. been around a little bit. He's a little bit of a whore when it comes to films, you can say. As <laughs> quote, He's quoted as saying, this is fun. The world around the world, the word around Hollywood is Lippert makes a lot of cheap pictures, but he's never made a stinker. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like maybe he's kind of ribbing himself a little bit. Uh, You know, I can't imagine him being very serious about that, but uh, I thought that's that's one thing that the Brits were very acclaimed for when it came to the American movie model. They never missed the deadline. There were times where the producers and stuff were like, we could use another week. No. You have six weeks exactly because as soon as you're done, you're working on the next film. Yep. What's so great about that as well is I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm sure, Jake, you have. Any of the films that you've looked up are all within, what, the golden hour of 90 minutes. Except They're for, all... of course, The Phantom of the Opera, which I was dying to watch. Right. Two hours, 44 <laughs> minutes. How every about sing- fuck that? Yeah, every, yeah. every single one of the classics, 93 minutes, 90 minutes. 98 minutes. And the reason for that is because the BFI, the British Film Institute industry, British Film Institute had strict guidelines and they had to be no more than 90 minutes. Weird. All right. If there are actually a couple of instances where films were, you know, going into two hours long and they're like, nah. You gotta fucking cut some shit. So yeah, it's it's kind of neat because I'm all about it. Yeah, you know? it's a perfect time. Exactly, and I think also the reasoning for that is a lot of these films were released as a double bill. So when it comes to release, a theatrical release, they were also 
piggybacked on with another film. Okay. So when sometimes you, when even like their own films, like they would pair She with One Million Years BC, and so they're marketing, hey, you can get two films for the price of one, and they can try and build stars because when you get into the later Hammer stuff, not necessarily best actresses, best looking <laughs> for sure. Right. Right. Exactly. Actress, not so much. Okay. Right. I miss the double feature days. Yeah. Good old time. Well, I mean, there's the drive-in. The drive-in. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's the only thing that's kind of reminiscent of the double feature. What I hate is the fucking intermission. Just to show me the two movies. I don't have time. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like the little hot dogs and popcorn dancing around and stuff? Let's all go to the <laughs> lobby where they don't have vegan snacks. Jake can go fuck himself all the live long day. I thought you would bring like carrot chips or something. What the fuck? <laughs> you mean kale chips? They're delicious and nutritious and they have nutritional yeast that tastes kind of like cheese or at least what I remember cheese tasting like over a decade ago. I'm sensitive about it. Let's move on, Brian. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so so the next big break, essentially, for Hammer Films, because they were, again, they were throwing out all these quota quickies, just trying to fill in the gaps of these major motion pictures. They try to delve into a little bit of a sci-fi slash horror, and they, they release the Quarter Mass Experiment. Correct. From, from... Do you know about the Quarter Mass Experiment? So it was originally a serial f- series in film that they then got the rights to, and they did as a movie. And so you might have noticed that the serial was E-Experiment. Right. But that their movie is Experiment. Reason, and, and the reasoning for that is because... Rated X. Rated X. Nailed to but, the X. But what's interesting about that is I'm like, oh, fuck, there's going to be titties and vajay in this? No. The Rated X in... At that in, time was like PG. <laughs> but also, Rated X in, in, in British film industry is completely <laughs> different than what Rated X is here. Oh, yeah. So Rated X over there is Rated R. So oh, <laughs> it's, it's not the X that you guys are hoping it is. And what's, what's really great about that as well is they're originally going to say, okay, it's quarter mass E-experiment. And they're like, nah, let's fucking exploit the <laughs> shit out of this. So we're going to take, we're going to drop the E and we're going to make in bold red writing. A black X. and white poster, the only color Right. And of course, you're going to add these people are like, oh, my God, this Dude, sounds raunchy as great shit, marketing. right? Absolutely. <laughs> that, I mean, is brilliant marketing. So they essentially quarter mass experiment is about, I believe it's three uh, astronauts go blasted into space. They return. They lose transmission there, you know, from the radio tower. One, the, the spaceship comes back. Only one astronaut's left, and he's like showing strange signs. He has like I don't know, like almost a catatonic state. He nobody really knows what's going on with him, but he has no idea where the other crew members are. There's just I, I think it's great how it's just their spacesuits. Yes, and it's just like <laughs> empty spacesuits, and you're like, <gasps> what happened? <laughs> They're really just taking a shower in the back, you know. <laughs> so. He, you know, he ends up going to the hospital from the hospital. One of the clinicians from the rocket group that they originally from was like, yeah, you know what? These fucking doctors, they don't know what they're talking about. We're talking about a guy that went to space and back. They don't have any idea what they're talking about. So they end up bringing him back to their own lab. And from there, you can kind of see like the transform in his face 
the transformation, I should say. And that's what really kind of boosted the reviews from the critics. And everybody was just like, oh my God, it's crazy seeing the transformation on film. I've never seen anything like this before. And it kind of threw hammer. It, it, it put them on the map, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was pretty cool. And then they did multiple sequels to it. Yeah. Uh, they also they went on to exploit the X thing again because they did X the Unknown. But it was the sequel to Quartermass Experiment, which is called Enemy from Space. You know, John Carpenter cited that movie as one of his biggest influences in making his own music because he loved the score so much. Oh, that's cool. Which is super rad because a lot of people, when you think when you think Hammer films, you very much think the visuals. It was color. It was blight. I mean, the the uh, the type of blood was even had its own name in Kensington Gore. So I mean, it is very right over the top. It was the, the Kodak Eastman color. This is a very new. This is cutting edge shit. But the music and everything was still quite good as well. The acting was real, still quite proficient. So it's very odd because you want to dismiss it as schlock. The, you know, the film industry at the time dismissed it as schlock. But then they were beholden to them both economically and then in terms of art. Like, look at since Hammer Films. Can you name a single British film company in any genre that has done what they've done ever? New. No, the answer no, is new. No, um, absolutely new. not. <laughs> yeah, from the from the success of Quartermass Experiment, that's when they actually decided, you know what, maybe we don't need to do these quota quickies and we should actually delve our time into making these full feature length films. And that's where you have the start of their horror, I guess, aspect or history part of right. What was their first movie? The, the, horror, first, the first horror genre. movie. Well, technically, I feel like it is Quartermass Experiment. Which is actually their 43rd movie altogether. Damn. Right, right. So Quartermass Experiment is technically like their first key horror film. Okay. Which, is, then, more, which is like sci-fi horror. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and we've talked about it before where there's there's subgenres of horror. Yes. So what classifies something as horror is whatever you feel like scares you. Right. Right. It could be a movie about clowns. Some my people are like, oh my God, clowns are amazing. Other people are like, that is fucking terrifying. Right. So it's just really whoever's watching it. The ones, the key ones that I'm going to delve into next are the classic horror films. Okay. So we're talking The Curse of Frankenstein. Yes. The first classic that they, that they made, 1957, had to be revised as to not be too closely similar to Son of Frankenstein. In 1939, which is a universal film. So you know all about, uh, like, you know, so I'm going to talk to Chad. So just mind your own manners. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So originally they were going to actually hire very old by this point, Boris Karloff to do the film. Okay. And they were going to make him up and everything. Then they get word that Universal wants them to do all this because they want to file an injunction against mm. them to stop them from doing it, to send a message that you will not do this source material. Wow. Because originally, so check this out, a homeboy from America goes over there and he's like, hey, I wrote this fucking script. It's dope as fuck. It's called Frankenstein. And they're like, uh, what? And they're like, uh, uh, uh. And so they're <laughs> like, it's not a bad idea because Frankenstein from Mary Shelley was already in the public domain at this time. Universal's Frankenstein was not. So they got the bright idea that they would make their own Frankenstein movie based on the original source material. Now that's where Universal's copyright comes in because they say their you know their plan is to let them make this movie and then cut it off at the head and then try and buy the movie out for a very significantly lower right. cost saying <laughs> you would never be able to release this but for us. Dirty bastards. Yeah. So it wasn't until I think it's the horror of Frankenstein that they got the rights from Universal to market it with the flat top head and the similar right, makeup. Right. Because at that point, what Universal did, 
they got the American distribution rights. Right. So at this point, they already have stuff in the works, and then they find this out, and they go, well, fuck. <laughs> so you have Christopher Lee working, and you know they find him six foot five. Six five, right, right. And, and you think him, you think his voice more often than anything, but at this point, he was just meant to be a physically imposing Which figure. Which I believe there's a Frankenstein that was six seven, I think is the universal, was six foot seven. Well, yeah, but he had the lifts on. But exactly. And then David exactly. Prowse played him, who played Darth Vader. He was also significantly taller than Christopher Lee as well. Right, wow. right. And by that point, he was wearing a wetsuit that had like prosthetics on it because they it was so rote at that point mm-hmm. that he didn't have to do the lengthy makeup process. But it's you know very interesting because Lee talked about by this point, he'd had over 10 years of acting experience in the theater. He had mime experience. He had all this. So he was he basically was hired because he was tall and he could do shit without opening his mouth. And he consciously like did things that like I don't know if you so would true. notice. I don't like, know if I like that, but so he'd move his arms <laughs> in a different way than he'd move his legs to denote that he was like hodgepodge together. Right. Okay. Like stuff that I think you dismiss at like a simple viewing, but if you watch this as art, it's like right. damn dog, get it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It was shot on a budget of sixty four thousand pounds. It made its money back seventy fold. Wow. Seventy fold. But it is still not their most successful film. In terms of commercial success, it was on the bus, which is a Benny Hill style comedy <laughs> on a double decker bus is their most yep. profitable film of all time. Wow. Yeah. Do you want more notes on this? Because I can keep talking. This, this is the one yeah. I did the most research on because yeah, I, I mean, love this isn't movie. This one of like the first ones that they used in color yes, when horror yes. wasn't like this is the in first color? horror film to be made in true color. Other films. That's pretty cool. Other films got away with gore because they were using monochrome photography. Just wow. like Psycho when they're using chocolate syrup. Right. And actually the color element is one of the reasons why Christopher Lee wanted to do this because he was actually friends with Boris Karloff. They were actually neighbors and cricket fans together. So they actually had a cordiality between them. He didn't want to step on his toes, but he ends up doing this because he gets to bring it into a modern era. But you look at his body of work. He plays everything. He plays the Asian guy in the terror of the tongs. He <gasps> plays offended. the mummy. He plays Dracula. <laughs> and a lot of those kind of roles he plays multiple times. Frankenstein, right. he only did once because the definitive representation of that character, well, I mean, it, Boris Karloff. It's right. the, I mean, it's the same thing with the opposite, right? I mean, and this is what uh, one of the notes that I'd put down for this film is this is the marriage, the initial marriage between Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Yes, and, and they're that, great together. And, that, and they both feed off each other throughout the history of Hammer, either with Victor Frankenstein and the monster or with Van Helsing and Dracula. Yeah, and in the Flesh and Blood documentary, it's actually narrated by both of them, which is kind of cool to have them play off of each other. Hmm. But one thing that I thought was really interesting was Lee actually was excited to wear all the makeup because Phil Leakey had done the you know, prosthetic and everything and they worked together to kind of come up with something that was different enough but familiar enough, right? Right. So Lee gets excited because he's like, okay, well, if I do a good enough job, people are going to want to know what I really look like. So my next movie will be a bigger success. He's happened to be correct <laughs> through that back-ass words thinking. <laughs> now, Jimmy Sangster, the guy who I told you was, you know, a carpenter turned producer at some point, right. even specifically mentioned, it ain't easy to convey emotion beyond a pound and a half of makeup. Talking about, like, <laughs> that's how much he did. And he still does a very evocative job. Yep. When he takes the bandages off his face, yes, it's a great visual. And when it pans in super close to him, and that... It burned into my brain forever. It's just a shame that it kind of looks janky because I'd love to get a tattoo of it, but people be like, what the fuck's wrong with your tattoo? I'm like, hey, it's its face. 
Now, uh, Roy Ashton was another one of the makeup artists, and he noted that he, if he was given a month before filming, that was a quote long time. <laughs> <laughs> this is not something where they, you know, you weren't making a film by committee like your Star Wars bullshit and all that. This was like a bunch of guys flying off the cup. From there, you have the Revenge of Frankenstein. Can I keep going a little bit on it? Oh wow, okay, yeah, go on. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I would see if you, do you have anything else on this. No, I don't. Okay, go for it. I, like I said, I'm a huge fan because. My favorite of the Universal Monsters is Frankenstein and always has been. So this one was very... I was excited to watch because I think I'd seen it as a kid, but I watched the full thing and it's great. You know, we always talk about me watching things at like 1.5 speed or whatever. This is an easy breezy watch at normal speed. Now, when Lee shows up on set, he's initially disappointed he has no dialogue if you look at Mary Shelley's source material the monster speaks yeah so he's he very, thought yeah eloquent yeah, exactly and so he says ah confound it I don't have any dialogue and Peter Cushing says consider yourself lucky I've read the script <laughs> I love him yeah. he's so good and he's so good in this film little quips here and there right yeah yeah well and then if you heard the past the marmalade so this is a thing that the you know true fans of Hoy Hammer talk about, which is the juxtaposition from when Victor Frankenstein's mistress gets murdered by the creature. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> that joke never gets old. Yeah. But anyway, cut straight from that to Victor having breakfast with his cousin and fiance. And he says, pass the marmalade. And so it's kind of your hammer horror version. And now for something completely different, which <laughs> I just to love. show that moving on, he's the true monster. <laughs> well, he doesn't do that. He's completely unaware of that situation. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. yeah I thought it was monster. more like you're saying he knew and he's just like, my normal day's going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can t tie it to. So Jimmy Sangster, again, whose name you're going to hear these names kind of pop up over and over again. He denotes it as you have to give the audience time to relax before you scare the living shit out of them. Direct quote, I'm not the one swearing in that scenario. But <laughs> that's the point is there's a brief reprieve. It's normalcy. We de you know, decline. And then when it comes back, you have more terror. One of these documentaries, though, I, I thought they said that their Frankenstein, the doctor Frankenstein, that the Hammer films made him kind of a piece of shit where the other one... Oh, he is. Oh, okay. So check this out. So in the Universal films, it's the creature who gets movie after movie. Right. In these, it's Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Okay. That's kind of what I was thinking. At one point, an American distributor made it so that he had to have a rape scene, which Cushing wasn't like comfortable Whoa. with. The girl wasn't. It was very awkward and it was not well received even on the set. The director, just it was Terry Fisher, just says, I'm not filming any more of this. Huh. It, he shows him like start to ravage her and then that's it. And then it gets cut anyway. But that's how like low they get the character to be despicable. Right. In the first one, he does despicable things. In the second one, it's a very interesting arc, I will tell you. The first one ends with him being put to death. Right, right. I mean, it almost seems like throughout the, the films, throughout the history of the Frankenstein films within Hammer, he digresses through time. At the, one of the later films, he's actually in a mental hospital and he is essentially killing patients and <laughs> using their body parts to create okay. a new monster. Yeah, in the second one, he makes a, an entire body out of hobo hearts. Because they're poor, I and mean, he just starts cutting body parts off them, which is actually how you know. We got that, loads of them here. Oh, yeah, for sure. The hobo <laughs> parts? I, I'm not that vegan. I'll eat some hobo meat, but that's fine. <laughs> but one dude has a tattoo of two snakes intertwined, and that's how you know that a Mr. Dr. Frank, as he is at the end of the movie, is actually Victor Frankenstein. 
the reanimated man in a Frankenstein body. It's awesome. I read the novelization, 196 pages of waste because it's the exact same (laughs) as the fucking movie. No new details. I was like, really, dog? But anyway, all right. I'm a big fan of it. If you can, they're super fun. Also, if you can find original copies of the soundtracks or novelizations of these films, hugely valuable in the collector's market. I only found digital stuff. But if you want to send us shit for free, by all means, hit us up. I'll give you our P.O. box. I'll collect it. I'll be rich. You cannot be. It's fine. (laughs) And then so in the second one, here's something interesting. Here's Did you find this out, Brian? Go on. Cannibalism in the second one. Did you know that? I did not. So the whole point was that that was the most horrifying thing that the director could think of. And while it's not overtly cannibalistic in terms of the way it's seen, you know, it's violence upon violence, but it's referenced based on a chimpanzee who had the same, you know, procedure. He ate another chimpanzee. So they talk specifically about cannibalism. Now you compare this movie to a little film called Night of the Living Dead. This one is first. George A. Romero, you fucking hack. <laughs> no, but they're com- they're presented completely differently. Right. But you could see at that point, I mean, by modern standards, it's like you have movies like a Serbian film where it's like baby fucking and stuff. And that's what's <laughs> scary. But back then it was just like a person would take a bite of a person without a kerchief wrapped around his neck. How uncouth. <laughs> I feel like any time we say Serbian film, we need to just bleep it out from the, the, <laughs> the recording so that the listeners don't get too intrigued and go check it out for themselves. Because yeah. it is something that you will never ever unsee. And if you want to see what David Prowse thinks is his best acting of all time, including Darth Vader, you want to watch Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. And that, I think, is my notes on Frankenstein. I probably could have done more because it is good. Well, I mean... I think this is this is the conversation we were talking about in the kitchen when Sierra walked in was the the, (laughs) the girthiness as far as how how much or how many Frankenstein films there actually were. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It essentially uh, like I like to tell Michelle because she loves this so much beating the dead horse. Yeah. So the next one you have is Evil of Frankenstein in 1964. You have Peter Cushing as Victor Frankenstein reprising his role. Yep. And then you have New Zealand wrestler Kiwi Kingston. Who sucks the monster. Yeah, <laughs> fucking terrible. They, they even acknowledge the director's like, I wish I would have found somebody who could act. Right, right. And, uh, you know, within... But he's fucking huge. Don't get that He's a giant dude. Oh, okay. He's a giant dude. And within this film, though, within the third, they finally have the similar look to the Universal Pictures monster with the flat, flat top. Yeah. With the flat top, like, John Glaude Van Damme. <laughs> Bison, I'm going to come down. I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> Frankenstein finds creature frozen in ice and thaws it out. Had to dull mind. He uses a hypnotist to try and revive his dull senses. The hypnotist is like, no, nah, fuck that. I'm going to control this monster and yep. wreak havoc on everybody. I'll betray you. Exactly. So, I mean, it's a little bit of fun, but yeah. So the next one you have is Frankenstein Created Woman. I'm just going to be jumping through these because, well, again, there's there's so many of these do. Frankensteins. The original Frankenstein was in 1957. Then they had the second one that came out in 1958, a year later. Which is still 10 years before Night of the Living Dead. Wow. That's crazy. So from there, you have another six years to the evil Frankenstein, which we just talked about with Kiwi Kingston, the wrestling Frankenstein. Then in 1967, three years later, they have Frankenstein Created Woman. This is no no Christopher Lee or anything. It's just Peter Cushion and Susan Denberg, who is essentially a new female monster. She was hot. So this is that's like the all. First, okay. It's not a skin flick, but they get into it later. 
<laughs> Let me ask you this, Chad. Which title do you like better for the second one? Revenge of Frankenstein or Blood of Frankenstein? Because he doesn't actually enact any revenge, which is kind of disappointing. Sorry, repeat the question. Revenge of Frankenstein or Blood of Frankenstein? Which one did I watch? No, which title sounds more titillating? Oh, Blood? Oh, because the working title was Blood of Frankenstein. When they conceived it under Blood of Frankenstein, they thought that they had to reattach the doctor's head because he's supposed to be put to the gallows at the end of the first one. You find out that he just escapes the guillotine altogether. So okay. Just a quick question, an anecdote while Brian revised his notes. Oh, there we go. So uh, I particularly like the storyline with Frankenstein Created Woman. What's interesting about it is you, you first get the henchman of Frankenstein, who's Hans. He's a reprising role throughout the the later Frankenstein films. The remaining, yeah. yeah. The remaining films, exactly. And with Hans, you actually find out that he's in love with a, the daughter of an innkeep and she is horribly disfigured in 1967 terms, I guess. That sounds really <laughs> bad to say. She had a little scar. She, yeah, <laughs> she, she essentially, she's paralyzed on the left side of her body and she has like disfigurement. Which okay. is basically Carl from Revenge of Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. So local assholes come into the tavern, they get drunk, and they end up making fun of, like, poking fun of the girl okay. because she's different. And we're <laughs> like a bunch of assholes that are like, ha, ah, let's make fun of her. Hans ends up defending her honor. He slices one of them. They take off. Well, as retribution or as payback, they go and they... They come back to the inn and they steal all the wine. They're like, well, let's get more fucked up and let's not pay for all of this because this is crazy and we're a bunch of crazy dudes. The innkeep ends up finding them and they beat the shit out of them and kill them. Well, Han, I, I, forgot, so I forgot to mention this. Han's father gets executed. He witnesses this and he becomes like kind of like a derelict and Frankenstein ends up taking him in like under his wing and kind of having him be his okay. henchman or his like, you know. Protégé. Exactly. His young ward, if you will. So when the innkeep gets killed, everybody automatically, like the authorities automatically assume, okay, Hans did it. Because he's had a troubled past and everything. Not to mention one of the local yahoos that was, you know, making fun of the girl. His father is like a like a high up constable, right? Go figure. They always it's almost are. Yeah. right. It's like something that could like be relatable to like us now, right? You're right. like everybody knows that guy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so he gets blamed. He ends up getting put on trial, and they find him guilty, and they kill him. From there, Christina, the disfigured girl becomes so depressed she ends up killing herself because they kill him <laughs> okay this is when it gets interesting because frankenstein believes that you can take the soul from one body and put it into another mm -hmm. so it's not so much of i'm gonna take body parts here and there and transfer it over it's i'm just going to absorb the mind and transfer it over into another mind and you have christina's body and hans's mind and you transfer it over. Whoa, so yep. that's yeah. sexy. That yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah. Why are you in the bathroom so long? Yeah, <laughs> and it's 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 pretty neat, right? Honk, and honk. and apparently <laughs> all through all of this, there's a regenerative property, and she becomes a super hot girl. <laughs> no disfigurement whatsoever. Yeah. And you're like, wow, how did I look out there? So deformity's gone. She becomes like superhuman strength. She goes after and she has vengeance on these thugs, and which is kind of cool because you're like, uh, I'm sure at the time when this film was made, you're like, oh my God, anybody getting killed, that is awful. Terrifying. But now you're just like, oh, dude, 
she's totally getting again revenge right. for her fallen lover, right? And then she ends up having this inner conflict within herself, thinking, "Well, is it me wanting to kill these, or is Hans actually taking over my body?" And hmm. that's actually be that that is the case. And then she kills herself because she can't really control between herself being good and Hans wanting retribution. And <laughs> yes, she ends up just killing herself. Wow. That's She's a, kill a pretty herself cool, twice? Dark, yeah. Damn. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool film. Absolutely. So, And then you get Horror of Frankenstein, right? Which is the remake. Well, like you the have remake. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed oh, there you go. in 1969. Uh, 69! Right? Frankenstein <laughs> attempts to cure a colleague of brain damage. Insanity and terror ensues. I mean, it, it, a lot of it is a rinse and repeat. Yeah. Over, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and revive a colleague. He ends up not being the guy I once knew. He ends <laughs> up going on killing rampage. Uh, he ends up getting killed. Frankenstein vanishes off into the sunset and disappears. Yeah. Nobody knows what happens. This is the one that ends with him getting his hands burned. Yeah, I think it is actually yeah, actually because they they reference it later on when he's a doctor in the insane asylum and he uh, he has gloves because he can't really do surgery anymore. He has to hire somebody else to do the surgery at his behest because he can't with the yeah. So then 19 huh. in 1970 and I'm assuming this is when a lot of people are on cocaine. They Ugh. made the horror <laughs> of Frankenstein, which comedy. was a comedy. Yeah, a failed yeah. comedy. A failed comedy, <laughs> very much so. Semi parody as well as a remake of the Curse of Frankenstein. No more Peter Cushing in this. Which I mean, right off the bat, you're like, ah, fu who fucking cares? <laughs> Essentially, is a playboy. Playboy Frankenstein gets bored at home, kills father, gets kicked out of medical school, and makes a monster. Yeah. Okay. The end. Yeah. Not good. But then no. Cushing comes back for the right, Frankenstein right. of the Franken Monster from Hell. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell three years later. Uh, I, I, I had a little note. Just kidding. Peter Cushing returns. Because I said <laughs> Peter Cushing no more. Yeah. Well, it's so, kind of like, you know, how we're like, oh, well, I mean, Halloween 2018 just bastardizes, you know, Halloween's 2 through 17. This is a very old trope. And especially if you watch the old Universal movies, the continuity there is just butt fucked the entire time. So <laughs> right, and this is the one again where Frankenstein's in an insane asylum. He is the he is the head doctor there because they're like, why the fuck should we pay somebody when one of our patients is a doctor? Because <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. You know, he he ends up killing the mental patients instead of harvesting organs instead of doing it like the old the old fashioned way, I guess. Yeah, and craziness ensues. Doctor Kavorkian with a tattoo of two twine snakes. <laughs> right. And that's all of the... And that is... Well, yeah. And that's all. <laughs> there was seven of, of the them. <laughs> there was seven of them. Yeah. So I, I think Dracula is just as many, if not maybe more. Let me let me double check my notes here. In terms of like Christopher well, Lee ones. Dracula, there were more Dracula films. Yeah. I stand corrected. With all the ones with uh, Peter Cushing, were they still like getting good returns in the box office? Yeah. yeah they absolutely. were profitable throughout. Oh, wow. And, and, and well, we, were talking, we were talking about this before where you said... It's more or less people pay for the actor. Yep. Once upon right. a time, where people had what was it the the page or the the yeah, card like title page of like yeah, the title page it. of a movie essentially has a big bold writing the name of the actor and people are like wow I right. really want to go see it because of so and so not so much of the source material. Well, that's one of the things that changed Hammer from a distribution company into a filmmaking company was because Tony Hines said you know people are going to the movies post war they don't care if it's good or if it's bad they care about that after the fact but they'll go and see anything it is right. an act of going out and being social it was a completely different climate than right. film before film before was a very artsy it's like an escape is, exactly that's exactly what i love about movies and books is 
I don't want anything that resembles my real life. I want <laughs> something yeah. weird and yeah, out exactly. there. Which is great for Victorian horror because right, exactly. A, it's all in the public domain so they don't have to pay anybody any rights. B, they already have all this stuff and they have set dressings and everything that are perfect right. for it. And then C, it's escapism. Right. And so it ends up working out pretty yeah. well. And then we hit 1958 Dracula. 1958 you have Dracula. Not to be confused with Dracula starring Bela Lugosi in 1931. Huh. Renamed in the US as Horror of Dracula to clear the confusion. Correct. <laughs> I have that in parentheticals in my notes as well. Oh, very uh-huh. good. Very good. <laughs> Based off Bram Stoker's novel. Which sucks for Peter Cushing because by the time that he like he became really famous as like Grand Moff Tarkin and everything, he was very old and like wispy. And that's the way that Van Helsing is described in Bram Stoker's <laughs> yeah. Dracula. So I actually heard him talking shit like I wasn't that wispy when I did that movie. I was pretty right. fit, dog. Right. <laughs> You're right. So Christopher Lee's Count Dracula, Peter Cushing is Dr. Van Helsing. Could you believe how many people were talking about how he sexy he was? Right. I was yeah, like, no, he's like, not. At, oh. at one point, was yeah. he sexy? Like, I don't, I'm sorry. I must have missed that. <laughs> he looked my, like my vice principal from middle school. I was like, no, he's not. <laughs> I think it's more or less like the brooding, like... Oh, yeah. He's a bad you boy. Know I mean? Well, it's not like the the raw strength and power of Dracula, right? It's right. the seductive, scary well, darkness I, of I heard him, somebody right? say he also didn't have the bloated face of Bela Lugosi, so that helps. <laughs> no, that, that, that might also help. One thing I hate is, so Martin Scorsese was talking about the introduction of Dracula where he comes down the stairs and the guy's like, Lord Dracula, blah. And he's like, I'm Dracula. And I was like, Hence him call what the fuck? But I can I make one yeah, soapbox? Go on. go on. So there's a lot of kerfuffle right now about Martin Scorsese talking shit about Marvel films. He's a diehard Hammer Horror fan. He would go with all of his bullshit little friends and they would see it and they would say, oh, you know, Hammer Horror, if you see that, like, you know that it's, quote, you know, a special picture, a certain kind of film, a surprising experience, usually shocking. He was such a big fan of them that he actually did a screaming of blood from the mummy's tomb while making Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and actually was in trouble with Warner Brothers for doing a screening that had nothing to do with the film, even though he called it research. So this is a dude who's a diehard fan. And we can all agree that Hammer films are like, it's so synonymous and analogous to Marvel films in so many ways. Right. You have a, a cyclical cast of characters. You have story structure. You have you know, your bits of, it's so weird to me that this guy could have this staunch opinion about something and yet be so outspoken for decades about his love of this. <laughs> what do you guys think of that? Am I crazy? Am I just being an overly avid comic book fan? I honestly think that, and I'm, I hate to step on anybody's so not step on anybody's toes, but really upset people, I guess, when it comes to my different opinion when it comes to certain directors. But I feel like Quentin Tarantino, Scorsese, some of these big name directors get so used to people saying yes to everything that they say that they can they're almost like a convoluted like they're like oh nope this is my <laughs> ultimate answer and and this is wrong and this is right and everybody's like oh my god that is the greatest thing you've ever said and it makes so much sense they're so up their own ass yeah yeah, yeah exactly i agree perfect i'm glad i've been agreed with you may move on <laughs> to your next point so what's interesting about this is chris early introduced fangs he introduced the red contact lenses that those are all very new when it comes to Dracula. And of course the gore, right? There was never that goriness 
to this to the films like there was in Dracula. And that that's really what kind of concerned them at first because they're like, I'm not really sure how receptive this is going to be. Plus, BFI is like, ah, motherfucker. <laughs> I don't know if we can do this. So there's actually multiple versions of this film. Some are uncut. Some are edited very heavily. Very circumcised. <laughs> very, very, he- circumcised. very heavily. And uh, apparently there's like an old Japanese version that has no cuts in it whatsoever. And That's it's the super rare. Edition, yeah. And it's like super huh. rare. I, I feel like, have they even released it? I don't think they have yet. It's not an official like Blu-ray or anything like that, but there there are releases of it. Yeah, exactly. So they'll probably end up r- coming out with like a digital like 4K version of the, the Japanese unedited version. And uh, once upon a time, I believe they thought it was completely lost. Huh. They did. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty neat. Harker accepts a job. So Harker is essentially, I'll, I'll just go briefly through the storyline of the film. You know, Harker is a, a supposedly a librarian who wants to go work for Count Dracula. He ends up being a relative of Van Helsing. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, son. <laughs> right. And so he, he gets to the castle. Van Helsing uh, looks for his apprentice because his apprentice goes missing. Uh, he meets a woman who is bitten by Dracula. Van Helsing opens curtains and essentially fries Dracula. That's just very kind of that scene jumping is awesome. Well, I mean the the ashes. Yeah. Oh, well, where it rots even away. he like running and jumping and pulling the oh, curtain yeah. down, and then he runs back and makes the cross. I was like, dude, this that's is his awesome. idea. So Peter right. Cushing was so annoyed that he used so many crucifixes throughout the film. He said that he felt like a quote crucifix salesman. <laughs> so it's his idea to grab one candlestick, run to the other side, grab the other candlestick, and do an improvised cross. And that's the coolest right. visual right. in that film. And you've seen it done like in films nowadays, oh, but yeah. to see it like originally, uh, I was like, dude, that what? is awesome. Salem's Lot with the two little tongue suppressors depre- exactly. depre- things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was very cool. And th- this is the big part where you see lots of cuts. That's what Brian's talking about. When it comes to that Japanese version, it shows the full face, the full face rotting melt, away. The face mount. I think the version that was released in England was just the hand. I don't even and then think they s- showed the dust. Well, they show his hand wither, and then I think they show the dust after, but they don't show his head concaving. Right. That's the big thing. And it's a great effect for the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and the budget, and the fact that they didn't have time to research. No, I mean, it. it still looks good. I was surprised. I think it looks delicious. He looks like blackened chicken. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that the the wives talked about in the bonus episode was I, I the Patreon bonus episode available yeah, for patrons. Right. Also, if you don't want to become a Patreon patron, if you can show us proof that you have donated to any cancer charity for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, please let me know. Send me a screenshot, and I will be happy to send you a copy of the Patreon bonus episode for absolutely free, no additional cost. Enjoy and continue, Ryan. And it was Hocus Pocus, right? You yeah, it was that, right? Correct. I did not okay. say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. They they had said something about what a what it means when I guess is is it continuity when they say something but that hasn't been actually released in the time of the film that it was actually made anachronism in. anachronism there you go so this film is set in 1885 however when Doctor Van Helsing puts his fur coat on young Tanya he tells her she looks like a teddy bear. A term that wasn't coined until 1902. Oh, um, shit. Actually, <laughs> it's American, bitch. <laughs> yeah. So that's all I got for Dracula. Anything? Anything? I else? will add Go that for of it. the 19 films that were produced by Fox in 1966, only six were profitable, two of which were Hammer films, one being Dracula and the other one being uh, Rasputin the Mad Monk, 
which Christopher Lee also starred in. Oh, wow. And as a promotional giveaway for that film, they gave beards to people in the crowd so they could hide from the forces of evil. <laughs> That's awesome. How yeah. fucking weird. <laughs> that is weird. I will not wear someone else's worn beard. Thank you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so from there, we have The Brides of Dracula. No Christopher Lee, sad panda. Peter Cushing's as Van Helsing sequel to Dracula, so no Chris really kind of makes us, makes sense, right? Because at the end of Dracula, in the first, he's crumbled to dust. Why the fuck would there be another Dracula, Chris? <laughs> like, I mean, this is at a point so early in the films where you can say, okay, somebody died. They're clearly dead. And then later on in the other films, they're like, wait, but I just saw him. It, mm. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Well, and right? Also, people weren't collecting these on Blu-ray or anything like that. Yeah, you went to true. the cinema that's and then true. it was gone. Or and then you're like, I forgot what happened in that one film, but hey, here's another Dracula. <laughs> here's the thing. I don't know that the people were forgetting because they didn't have like constant media and every other thing. That's I can't true. remember shit all about what we do in the shadows, even though last week I was telling you guys you need to watch that whole show. <laughs> I remember it pretty vividly. I hate this goat. It's my favorite line of the whole season. But continue, Brian. The, al- the alternative working titles were Dracula 2. Boring. <sighs> and Disciple of Dracula. Which, eh, I don't mind that. D-O-D. How about Dracula, <laughs> yeah. the number two, the grave? <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. It wasn't very well received. No. No. The monthly film Bolton of the UK wrote, the genuinely eerie atmosphere of traditional vampire folklore continues to elude elude the cinema. This latest sequel in Hammer's apparently endless series adds little to the Dracula legend other than a youthful, good-looking vampire and nothing to the familiar Hammer format of inappropriate color and decor. Yikes. Damn. Which is why it's not until 1966, but they do Dracula Prince of Darkness where the prodigal son returns. Yep, Chris Refusing Lee. to say a fucking word. Chris <laughs> fucking Lee, man. He hated the script and was like, nope, not wow. going to speak. You can't make me. Yeah, it's funny because afterwards he's like, did you read it? It's fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> Outwardly mocked the film. It Like the effects and everything. It's just a weird movie. I'll be yeah. honest with you. It's so not that So essentially the story takes place 10 years after the death of Dracula. Travelers get stranded outside the castle. Kind of reminds me of Rocky Horror Picture Show. A little bit. Essentially okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a riderless carriage that picks them up. <laughs> because yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let me yeah. just jump into a riderless carriage. It drops them off right in front of the castle. The doors swing open. There's two tables and like dining, like a a dining set and like dinner made. And they're like stranded out in the middle of nowhere. Hey, this is like, awful that, convenient. That makes, yeah, that's yeah. like super sweet. <laughs> let's let's check it out. That's when you have the the shot of the guy and the girl sleeping in bed. He hears a noise. He goes to investigate. Hans, I think it's Han. No, it's not Hans. It's uh, is it Hork? I feel like no Clove. They all have fun names. They're like all the henchmen, they're like Hans, Hork, Clove. I think Hork might have been in Mummy. Anyways, it's Clove. So Clove is essentially Dracula's... Clove with a K. Clove with a K, yeah, exactly. Right. He is Dracula's henchman. And he mixes his blood with ashes to revive him. The then? blood with ashes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No. What? No. That's the, the other film. That is The Blood of Dracula or Dracula. Let me see. Taste of taste the blood of Dracula is the one where they mix blood with the ashes and the ring and the brooch. Okay, how does he revive him in this one then? In this one, hold please, hold please. 
man man hears noise in the night, gets killed by a henchman, and uses ah, son of a bitch. Okay. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, damn, dog. All yep. that research no, that is wasted. Right. That is right. So, <laughs> okay. but in in the in the other film, they actually drink the blood. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right. dog. Yeah. So they <laughs> drink. You know that it works. They drink the blood in this one. He mixes the blood with the ashes, and he revives Dracula. That is correct. That is correct. Family members look for a lost relatives, encounter Clove. Dracula seduces women and makes them fight for him because that's what Dracula does. Fight for me, bitches. (laughs) I like my notes here. This is fun. Monks get involved. Shits get shit gets weird. What? That's a fucking four way I've ever heard. Five way. Dracula, two monks, two ladies. It sounds like a party. Dracula gets captured in coffin while sleeping. They end up trying to bring Dracula out of the castle. Clove ends up grabbing hold of the carriage, drags Dracula back to the castle. Clove gets killed. Coffin ends up sliding onto the ice moat in front of the castle, which is like one of the iconic scenes, right? <laughs> Where it's like frozen over moat. And yeah. it's like you can see the contrast of like the blood and the white ice, which I think is really cool. And, and then, so he's like impervious to bullets, but they shoot the ice underneath right, him. Right. So he falls into the water. Oh. Oh, you like Which that. Which I feel yeah. like you, I mean, how many times have we seen something like that in films? Batman like, Begins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. My name is Liam Neeson. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, and then I'm kind of jumping back to what Jake was saying before. It's Christopher Lee Diss. Dracula does not speak in the film, save for a few hisses, <laughs> which I think is pretty hilarious. It's hiss <laughs> According Sorry, to Christopher Lee, I didn't speak in that picture. The reason was very simple. I read the script and saw the dialogue. <laughs> That's so awesome. I said to Hammer, if you think I'm going to say any of these li- these lines, you're very mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> Why did he even do the film then? Uh, it's this thing called money. Oh, did he really need it that bad? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they weren't making like fuck you money. This was like a salary more or less. Oh, okay. They, these movies were successful. Don't get that wrong. But this was not like retire off of one film kind of thing. Interesting enough, though, the screenwriter, Jimmy Sangster, who we've spoken his name about a a few times now, disputed that account from Christopher Lee in his memoir, Inside Hammer, writing that, quote, vampires don't chat. So I didn't write him any dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) I like that like little witty little comeback, right? (laughs) Well, I like that's clearly some damage control for his reputation in like kind of a repartee to Lee because there was dialogue in the other Dracula film. So it's like they don't chat except for the time that they chatted. Remember when they chatted? Okay. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, he actually, he has a a little snarky remark here. Christopher Lee has claimed that he refuses to speak the lines he was given. So you can take your pick as to why Christopher Lee didn't have any dialogue in the picture. Or you can take my word for it. I didn't write any. (laughs) (laughs) The film was made back to back with Rasputin, the Mad Monk. Interesting enough. We just talked about that. I did. (laughs) Using many, many of the same sets and cast, including Lee, Shelley, Matthews, and Farmer. It was actually also shot at the same time as The Reptile. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Shelley later remembered accidentally swallowing one of her fangs in one scene <laughs> and having to drink salt water to bring it back up be- again because of the tight shooting schedule, as well as there being no spare set of fangs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she, they couldn't wait for her to pass it through, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Hey. From there, you have Dracula has risen from the grave, re- released in 1968. You have Christopher Lee as Dracula uh, again. 
frozen in the most fro- frozen in the most frozen in the moat. And apparently a priest goes to visit the castle, slips and falls on the ice, cracks his head open, blood seeps down into the moat and goes into Dracula's mouth. It's okay. amazing. Wow. I watched the sequence on YouTube. It's amazing. But does he talk in this one? Yes. Yes, he oh, does. Okay. Yeah. So priest gets enslaved and does Dracula's bidding. Dracula again is entrances females to spread vampirism using his seductive ways. And, you know, it's really interesting, right? You you start to see a a pattern with Dracula. He doesn't so much go after any of the the burly dudes. Right. He's he's more of the the thinker. He's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get as many sexy looking women as possible and then have the guys fall over themselves oh, and I, join my army. Yeah, I've definitely seen all the porno parodies of this. <laughs> <laughs> they always play out the same. Right, exactly. <laughs> Nobody wants to see uh, Frankenstein doing it. Yeah, <laughs> sucking on some big guy's neck. <laughs> Fire bad, come better. <laughs> like that? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so Dracula ends up fighting somebody on the parapet. He ends up getting over. I think it's parapet, parapet, parapet. It's a pair of pits. Parapet, (laughs) parapet. I feel like it's architectural, almost like bridge in between towers. I guess you want to call it. You know, like the walkway. You see a lot of people fight on these like castles and Victorian architecture with rhyme. The the flying (laughs) butt trisses. So he he gets he gets thrown off that. And the first first uh, a cross gets thrown from the top of the castle. Apparently, the cross lands in such a way that it's pointing Spiked straight up. up. <laughs> Go figure. And then Dracula gets thrown off and then lands on on the cross. So wow. he, gets, he gets impaled on the cross, huh. which is kind of a, a, a pretty gruesome fatality. Yeah, it, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what's interesting about this is a lot of these films, they kind of jump back and forth, I guess maybe more so later on in hammer films. They're, they're like written a lot looser. They don't, they're not like, okay, well, okay, this is how this ended. So we're just going to continue from here. Well, (laughs) in this one in particular with the new one, taste the blood of Dracula, you have, Literally, the first scene is of Dracula on fire running around with a cross stuck in his back. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay, he's he's not dead. That's great. Yeah. That makes sense why, for why Dracula is still around. It's not like <laughs> he was frozen in a moat and then blood seeped down into some ice. Yeah. <laughs> Awkward. Right. But I, I always thought it was interesting. If you get thrown from somewhere high up and you're Dracula, would you not turn into a bat and fly away? Does he do that? Does this version do it? I want to say somebody does get killed by a vampire bat. I don't want. I don't know if it's Dracula per se. It right. might have been one of his minions. But the, this lore, he doesn't turn into a wolf or a bat, right? I didn't think so. That's well, more. I might be wrong. Yeah, maybe. Recent maybe. Films. Maybe. Well, I'm wrong. no, it's actually the original. Original. It's the original book, but not in the movie, right? The '30s Dracula. No, not. Yeah, he doesn't. Right. Do okay. Anyways. He then did. you go to Scars of Dracula in 1970. Right, right. From there, you have Scars of Dracula. Although disparaged by some critics, the film does restore a few elements of Bram Stoker's original character. The Count is introduced as an icily charming host. He has command over nature, and he is scaling the walls of his castle, hmm. which uh, apparently is something that was not done before. 
it's actually yeah. an effect they had to do like Batman style where he, then you see it. It's very weird because <laughs> he still has his cape and everything. And it, looks, it looks odd, but hmm. it's cute. It also gives Lee more to do and say than any other Hammer films except for the first 1958's Dracula. Yeah. So he's, they had to appease Christopher <laughs> Lee. Because <laughs> well, by the time they do the next one, uh, Dracula AD 72, oh I mean, God. he's just kind of there. Right, exactly. And then when it gets to the satanic rites of Dracula, I mean, again, not... Yeah, the final film. He's he's well, already... Not the final the, Dracula the, film, the, the final, the final Christopher film Lee, with Christopher yeah. Lee. And he's already checked out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Universally hated by critics, the, the satanic rite of Dracula. So. Well, what sucks, I really wish he would have come back for the last one, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. With the, with the Kung Fu? Fuck yeah. <laughs> dude. <And> Shaw Brothers? <laughs> what? Yeah, oh, dude. I'm in. Dude, it's Kung Fu and, and vampirism. Oh. It's like Blade, the original. Dude, <laughs> my erection is so hard right now. Yeah, so that basically delves into the Dracula arm of Hammer. From there, you have... Actually, Blade came first. Blade first appeared in the Tomb of Dracula, number 10, July 1973, and of course, obviously, Chad, if you would know anything with that brain of yours, mm-hmm. um, The Legend actually, of the Seven Golden Vampires did not come out until 1974. Well, mm. And we know that this was not production life. very long because clearly it's only a six-week <laughs> production shooting. So basically it ripped off Blade. Okay. Even though Blade wasn't really Kung Fu Man in the comics, but whatever. Yeah. What was Blade in comics? I mean, he was just a guy. Oh. In Tomb of Dracula, he was just a dude with a purple coat. That's not fun. Yeah. So from there, we go on to The Mummy. Right. Oh, and the curse of the mummy is delightful. Or excuse me, rather the the curse of the, the mummy. mummy 19- the curse of the mummy's tomb. No, the first one, mummy, nineteen fifty nine. Yeah, the mummy. Yeah, the mummy is good. And if you've seen Blood Diner, Blood Feast, you know that you can see the iconography here. It's like it's so much visual referential humor. It's like oh yeah, especially Herschel yeah. Gordon Lewis basically stole a lot of this. Yeah, movie. reading the <laughs> scroll and everything. The yeah. shrine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Peter Cushing comes back. And he is the archaeologist John Banning, searching for the tomb of Princess Anika Ananka Ananka. Ananka finds a scroll of life and reads it like a bunch of dumb dumbs. Well, his <laughs> because, dad does, and right, then goes yeah, cuckoo bananas. Exactly, exactly. For three years. And I say the reason I say finds a scroll and reads it like a dumb dumb is because honestly, when does anything ever good happen from finding something in a tomb <laughs> and then reading it? But yeah. did he have a movie like The Mummy 1959 to shape his perception of the events? Well, it's true. So basically, this is how like delicate people were in their sensibilities back then. He reads the scroll. A mummy comes out from behind a wall. He loses his fucking mind for three years babbling three to years. himself. Yep. And it's not until like huh. some mystic force that breaks him from his like spell and then he gets killed the next day anyway by <laughs> the same mummy. It is so weird. Like wow. why... D- and he doesn't like, yeah, it's very weird. But right. if you've seen like the Brendan Fraser one, they take certain elements like the woman looking the same and everything. Well, and, and, and essentially the the fanatic of Ananka, right? Yeah. The, the the guy outside the tomb that they come across and they're like, oh, dude, get the fuck away from me. You, you gotta love that. Like there's a whole <laughs> sequence where they're like looking for suspects, like pouring through the guy's dad's old documents and everything. And then the one dude's like, Oh yeah, remember that Egyptian guy who was like, "Your dad's gonna die." Fuck you. <laughs> they're like, "Oh, oh wait, an Egyptian guy moved uh, next door." Just write him <laughs> off. <laughs> no connection. <laughs> Moving on. The best part of this fucking movie: Peter Cushing jumps up onto a bookshelf that's like built into the wall, grabs this like spear, then spins around midair and stabs it through 
Christopher Lee's torso sticking out the other end. Wow. Christopher Lee then breaks the other half and they keep fighting. That's pretty awesome. It's yeah. dope. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, essentially, and it was what's really cool. And this this tells back into like you said with the Brendan Frazier Frazier movie when it comes to the mummy looking at somebody that resembles Ananka, and they end up stopping. They stop fighting because they're like, "Oh my god, I'm I'm basically my whole purpose is to serve you. Yep. What do you want me to do? Hmm. So I mean, that happens in part one of the new mummy or I say new mummy, but one, it's like yeah. fucking 20 years old now. <laughs> Seriously, uh, it's crazy old. Yeah. And so, so in this yeah. one, it ends where the mummy's going to just take her into the swamp and like drown she, them both. She like regains consciousness after the, the fanatic tries to kill her. The mummy kills the fanatic, brings her to the swamp. He wants to take her into the swamp with him basically to go, you know, right off in the sunset into the swamp. She wakes up, tells, demands him, demands him (laughs) to put her down. Uh, He gets, he puts her down. The the police show up, they shoot him. He sinks into the bog while holding the scroll, while holding the scroll. Exactly. So nobody can use it ever again. Well, I don't know about that because there were uh, four other movies in the franchise. Yeah. Apparently it was adapted in a 12 page comic. I did not know that. I wish wow, I would have. Wow, interesting. Brian's busting out the comic book knowledge. <laughs> a glass fiber replica of the sarcophagus created for the film is also in the collection of the Perth Museum of and Art Gallery. That's awesome. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's actually a pretty fucking sweet uh, sarcophagus. Awesome. I like it. It definitely looks like a fucking real thing. So Yeah, it's bravo. crazy. They were talking about the set design for The Mummy <clears throat> and just how they made it look like a multi-million dollar set and it's just right, very, right. very meager amounts of time and money spent on it. So the next one we go to is The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb came out in 1964. Not filmed at Brave Studios, but at Elstree Studios. Doesn't have any of the Hammer veteran actors. Yep. Womp, womp, womp. Because, no Cushing, no Lee. Because, wow. because union rules in Britain decreed that one person could not be credited as the writer, producer, director of a film, Michael Chris adopted the name Henry Younger for his screenplay. A deliberate analogy to the name John Elder, which was Hammer's produ- Hammer producer Anthony Hines' writing pseudonym. So everybody just kind of finding that loophole <laughs> to keep releasing these films. Because they're like, fuck you guys, we're going to do what we want, right? Yeah. Critics, uh, critics, critics bash it again. I say again, as in multiple films by Hammer at this point just get bashed on by critics because that's what critics do. But it's commercially successful so All much the so. time. All yeah. of these are cr- critically success, commercially, commercials? Yeah. Commercially successful. Dickie Owens, the guy who plays the mummy in this one, actually comes back for the next one. Right, uh, right. In his review, Time Out Film Guide, editor and National Film Theater chief programmer Jeff Andrew described it as a, quote, limp hammer sequel <laughs> unquote <laughs> that is resolutely unimaginative wow wow it's a little harsh <laughs> yeah right from there you have the mummy shroud 1967 this is when again eddie powell played the played the dummy the mummy <laughs> wait dickie owens i thought i thought i, I thought it was maybe both of them eddie maybe powell. one did stunt work i know the stunt man eddie some eddie powell is essentially christopher lee's stunt double and so that's probably he, what it was that he did the mummy the other work. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh can't get Chris Lee, but <laughs> I said can't get Chris Lee, but we can get the closest thing to him. <laughs> oh no, excuse me. He didn't play the mummy, he played Prem. I excuse me, I was my way wrong. Oh, that's all right. The last hammer film to contain a bandaged mummy. The final production to be made at Bray Studios. Man finds tomb, man recites ancient texts, mummy rises, wreaks havoc, mummy gets destroyed. <laughs> 
feel like we've seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're really reminiscent. But then you get the sexy blood from the mummy's tomb where you get wicked underboob. You do? Ooh. Oh, it's red. You want to take that one, Jake? I always like to go no, underboob. <laughs> all I care about is the wicked underboob. Wicked underboob. It's quote unquote loosely adapted from Stoker's The Jewel of the Seven Stars. Right, right. Writer Chris Wicking says the film was one of the last projects that James Carreras brought to Hammer. Wicking wanted to use the title of the book, but Carreras did not. They brainstormed titles and came up with Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which Wicking thought they would never use, but they ended up using anyways. Besides providing a rare leading role for Valerie Leon, the film is notable for its troubling production. Peter Cushing was cast in the film and completed one day's filming before leaving the production after his wife was diagnosed with emphysema. Which is a big thing back then. And if you like, if you listen to the actresses on set, like I, even the woman who I think that he, you know was supposed to do that rape scene with, they all talk about like how desperately he loved his wife. So this was like a big right, torturous right. thing. And so it's super sad time in his life. Cushing was replaced by Andrew Keir. The R1 DVD of the film released in the United States by Anchor Bay Entertainments contains still photographs of Cushing's day on the production. Director Seth Holt died of a heart attack five weeks into the six-week shoot, oh, collapsing out. into cast member Aubrey Morris's arms and dying on set. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like maybe this should have been the curse of the mummy's tomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the last of the kind of key classic horror films that... Hammer came out with. They came out with a lot of other different uh, works. They came out with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Sister Hyde. Yep. They did Phantom of the Opera. Liter- womp womp. A couple. Of- you know, that one was originally written for Cary Grant, and then he backed out. And the reason, so there's a, like a killer dwarf in it, so the Phantom isn't the one killing people, because Cary Grant was supposed to play the Phantom, and then he backed out, so it's just this weird movie with a murderous dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it. Now, yeah. when you think of the Phantom of the Opera, there's a song that you think of, and it's because of Hammer Films, because the 1925 one, silent, no music, no es musicado. But when you think of it, you think. Mm-hmm. That is Takata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. You're welcome. Why were we what? waiting for that? Yeah. Okay. I already forgot. What? <laughs> I just said that's in the original movie, they didn't have music, so there was none. Got but when it. you think of that song, you think of Phantom of the Opera because of Hammer Films. Okay. They changed the perception of human life. Hmm. I like it. All right. I like it. I'm going to edit that whole thing out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few literary adapt, adapt, adaptations. Having fun with words here. The Devil Rides Out, The Witches, She, The Vengeance of She. And she old- not to be confused with the misfit song. She that's actually about <laughs> Patty Hearst. This one's different. That's it. And the old dark house. And then one of the last ones they actually came out with within, I guess you would call it the classic era of, of hammer would be when dinosaurs rolled the earth, <laughs> which had Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. Which Pretty is awesome. From- one that I wanted to touch on if we could the yeah. legend of the werewolf, the only werewolf picture that they did. So censors objected very staunchly to this film. And Hammer argued, well, actually, it's less graphic than Hitchcock's Psycho, to which the censors replied, Terrence Fisher is no Hitchcock. 
Oh, <laughs> wow. Fucking burn, dude. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you can unfair. clap back from that one. Yeah. You just got to take it. And you just bend over and just be like, well, I'll have another. Thank you. <laughs> and so then they did the two TV series. They did the two TV series the as Hammer well. Hammer House yep. of Horror and Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense. They also did Journey to the Unknown. So they Correct. did three. But so. that's not. It's like a, a waffler in the horror. Exactly. It's yeah. like the more sci-fi. And then the last horror movie that they did all together was To the De- Devil a Daughter in 1975. And then they, and then also, I mean, they have the revival, right? The revival of Hammer. They've had two which of them, yeah. Essentially, well, yeah, this is the latest, like 2019. But you all, you have uh, Let Me In, you have Good. The Resident with Hillary Swank, mm-hmm. A Woman in Black, with which Hillary. also, I the Resident like actually had Christopher Lee. So, which is. Oh, pretty neat. There's a Brings cute picture back. of him having his birthday on set with a giant cake. The Aww. woman, the woman in black, came out in 2012. I'm Harry Potter. You have the quiet <laughs> ones. Okay. Then you have just recently you have the lodge, which I'm actually really interested in seeing, just yeah. from all the different reviews I've read. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen it yet. So some of the other Hammer films, just as as of no, I just want to throw Wait, out there. Hold on, the lodge has Alicia Silverstone in it, as if. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Brian. Yeah, throw that in there, Daniel. <laughs> I did. No, it's fine. I, there's just a few more Hammer films I just wanted to throw in there at the very Such end. Such as Polly's Two Fathers. Devil's Ship Pirates. You ah. ever heard of that one? Nope. Had Christopher Lee in it. Love it. <laughs> it's an adventure piece film. So mm-hmm. I think it's like just like pirates like sailing the sea. What about Monkey Manners? <laughs> <laughs> nope, never heard of that one. Yoga and You. <laughs> Yoga and a, the average man. Is that real? Yeah. Two, oh, nice. Both of those That's were 1957. Awesome. The anniversary starring Betty Davis. <laughs> OG Betty Davis. Here's like what it. it sounds super exciting. A man on a beach. Oh. Yeah. At this point, you can tell they're just throwing in whatever the fuck they want out there. Like, <laughs> oh, it's got hammer films on it. Nah, it'll be good. <laughs> one thing I wanted to mention too, so Jaws was one of our biggest hits. That was a uh, reigning and defending tra- right. classic champion for a while. Now, two things that link it back to Hammer. They did a movie called The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. In that, they consciously decided never to show the full-bodied Yeti and only showed glimpses at a time, such as eyes, arms, feet, what have you, which I think was very thematic in Jaws. Yeah. They also were doing Nessie for Chad, you with your favorite cryptid, and they planned to basically rip off Jaws, but with Loch Ness Monster, but due to tons of production delays, it, that project outlived Hammer. Oh, yeah. I don't know why womp I feel womp. like trying to film Nessie or make Nessie within a, a certain budget <laughs> yeah. would be a lot harder <laughs> than doing a, a, a giant shark. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, do you, there was that movie with the little girl magic in the water where the sea monster eats Oreos. You remember yes, that? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect in that. I can't imagine. Any, it was. A, <laughs> I mean, we all think of that as like the quintessence of good filmmaking. Oh, and there's also Water Horse. Yes. Yeah. I mean, water horse. <laughs> I say water. You say horse. <laughs> Wait, horse? Yeah. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much all I got. That's all, folks. I'm impressed. Thanks, guys. I actually, this was uh, a lot of fun. And if there are Hammer films that you'd like us to review, please let us know. The hard thing is just trying to find them that can be relatively inaccessible, but that comes from a lot of contract work where yeah, here's absolutely. you know RPA pictures, here's whatever. They have MGM. <laughs> a large body of work. It was, right. I mean, this is like literally the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Hammer films. Over 300 plus, I believe. 
something along those lines. Jake, do you have the number? Uh, how many films they came out with? What's over 250 oh, films 200? and TV projects. Yeah. So, Jeez. I mean, <laughs> if you got some time to kill. <laughs> <laughs> to Brian's point, like because of their generally pulp nature, they are very consumable in a short amount of time. Yes. And it doesn't drag on. While there are well, some all, stylistic mean, choices where it's like a long establishing shot, you're not really dealing with stuff where it's static. You know, cinematographer Freddie Francis was talking about the hammer in their style. He said that they, quote, put beauty into everything, even the crypts and the coffins. And he was a huge guy because he only was a DP for them on one film. He ended up being a director and he talked about he had so much fun on his first film that he did another film and he did another film and then he ended up doing something and becoming something he never intended to be, which is a horror movie director. That's just like the kind of familiar yeah, I mean, relationship. You just they gain all that experience from being around people and you can imagine doing so many sets with so many directors, you end up just, they rub off on you and you pick up on some of their directing styles right? and you run with it basically. So uh, it's kind of neat. It's like they're, it's almost like they're going through an apprenticeship. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I would definitely phrase it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. One fun quote that I found was a reviewer for a magazine called Sight and Sound wrote, a sane society cannot stand the posters, let alone the films. I think that speaks a lot. If you can, go to your little Google image search and search the, you know, Posters, posters the various posters of wow. Hammer films. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. How yeah. many of them are just close-up shots of Christopher Lee? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them. A lot of them. But I mean, all, <laughs> if you look right now in a lot of graphic media, if you look at companies, yeah, True Grit, here you go. There's your free plug because I love all those stuff that they do there. That kind of kitschy, you know, you see it kind of in the Tiki Room stuff that we've seen. The color palettes, the staunch contrast, I mean, that's classic poster making 101. Yep. You can see a lot of it. Uh, if you're uh, in college, freshman year maybe, learning what marijuana is, maybe put a couple <laughs> of these up on your wall, show people you got some edge. You know what I'm saying? I like it. For me, it would be more like a Pulp Fiction poster <laughs> or something. But. What would you, would you have uh, Donnie Darko for Chad? What? No. Yeah, Donnie Darko. Right. Maybe Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth. No. Uh, map. Yeah. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Not all those who wandered are lost. <laughs> <laughs> those fucking basic bitches just ruined everything. <laughs> so I do think that I am ready to close this off. So, Brian, do you want to be the guy who does the close off this week? No, don't put me in that position. Okay. So, <laughs> any closing remarks you have? Uh, no. No, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it, and actually. For it being my first research, my dab into research, if you will. I don't know how they do that. The dab thing. I just oh, I saw a guy who did a lazy dab that turned into doing a Hitler salute. Whoa. It was very awkward. I didn't do the Hitler salute for you guys listening. And um yeah, I th- I I really enjoyed it, actually. So Are you ready for the next one? Well next week. Give me a few and then and then I'll do another. So as I I, I myself feel like I hammered through this pretty quickly, but um yeah, I'll next time around. I'll Jake's over there, like, kind of grinning, like, dude, we gave you like five months. <laughs> Make sure to tune in for Brian's next episode, The Horrors of the Bible, which he will read from beginning to end. No, I will not. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's I think it's time to end it, right? Awesome. So, as always, be sure to reach out to us. Let us know that you like the show, hate the show, want us to change the show, go back to just doing movie reviews because we're like every other basic video in the world. If you can, please rate, review, subscribe, giving those little five-star reviews, thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever the hell you got to do. It helps us a lot in terms of being found. I have looked at 
so much analytical data when it comes to YouTube and other streaming devices that basically even me begging to someone and typing our name of our show into their search browser is not enough to get them listening. So we need you to grow and justify us spending way too much time researching things that are 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so for my... Wait, no, you say. Yeah, well, if you ain't watching dying, you ain't really trying. Enjoy killing time. Until next week. And for all the dildos around me at this table, Jim's here. He kept his mouth shut this whole damn time. He's tapping his microphone that's not plugged in. <laughs> My name is Jake, reminding you to go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. It's that time for the hidden track. Now, the one reason I'm not putting my fist through my laptop right now is because it is the device that is currently playing me songs by Silent Horror. You can find their album Silver Screen on Bandcamp, on YouTube, on Spotify, and you can find their merch at BigCartel.comrad. That's right, they're all from Soviet Russia, .comrad specifically. If you put in anything else, you won't be able to buy their radical merchandise. So here they are with Phantom of the Opera.